Good morning, church. Good morning. Am I on okay? Everybody hear me good? Uh, I believe the Spirit of God is in this place. Uh, and I believe that for many reasons, uh, but for one reason is uh, Steve Castleman just remembered uh, a bunch of names uh, all at once. <laughs> and uh, that's a small miracle. Uh, <laughs> now, thank you, Steve, for walking us through that time. What, a, what an important part of a church family. And to be able to walk through that, I know is a blessing. Thankful for a shepherding group that continues to be led by the Spirit of God. And for a congregation that prayerfully considers uh, what it means to be shepherded uh, by these shepherds as it's laid out in the New Testament. And so what a, what a blessing that is. Grateful for our current shepherds and looking forward to serving alongside those who will be appointed in two weeks. And I also want to express my appreciation uh, to Jeff Taylor and his wife, Lee, and to Brian and his wife, Jan. Uh, what a blessing it's been to serve alongside you. And I know we'll continue to serve alongside you. Uh, but you have been a great gift to this congregation and will continue to be. I also want to say congratulations to our graduating seniors, uh, Kaysen uh, and Sarah. Uh, I hope that you know, as already been mentioned a few times, that, uh, that you will always have uh, a home at Homewood. And we're thankful for your presence uh, here today. And tis the season for uh, graduations, right? And so uh, I, I don't want to leave out. We know that graduations go beyond high school. So uh, if you are graduating with an undergraduate degree uh, or a graduate degree of some kind. Um, I'm just going to ask you, if you will, uh, just stand right now. I know we have a few. Uh, if y'all just will stand up, uh, anybody's graduating, got a few over here. Anybody else graduating with an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree? So all the smart people are over here. All right, let's give them a round of applause. That's awesome. Um, and I'll just say uh, to you three, and there may be some that are online, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Uh, we are going to sing that blessing at the end of today's service, um, but just wanted to verbalize that at this time. If you're new to Homewood, uh, grateful that you're here. You picked a great day to be here. As Steve mentioned a moment ago, uh, you get to see uh, some of the fullness of the life of a church. Uh, but also today, immediately following service, uh, we have a brief class. It's about 30 minutes, and uh, it's an opportunity uh, for you to get to know some leadership and leadership to get to know you. So if, you've, if this is your first time here, if you've been here for several weeks uh, and you've not been through our Catch the Vision class, I want to personally invite you to come to that class. It's just right down the hall. It's going to be upstairs in the room next to the elevator. We'll even feed you, uh, and I promise it'll be brief, but we uh, want to, to just let you know how much uh, we're glad that you're here. So please consider coming to that. Um, speaking of the elevator, uh, uh, just, just to let you know, uh, we had the elevator repaired, but then we found out there was one part on the elevator uh, that didn't get installed correctly. So now we're, we're waiting on that part. Um, but we do hope the elevator will get fixed before Jesus returns. Uh, that, is our, <laughs> that is our prayer. But if Jesus returns, guess what? We're not going to care about that elevator, all right? We're not going to have any qualms about the elevator uh, come that time. So thank you for your patience and understanding uh, with that. Uh, let's just, as we jump into today's message, let's, let's go to God in prayer once again. So Father, as we open up your word today, we ask that you will open up our hearts God, I ask that you'll open up our minds as well to your will in our lives. So we pray, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
It's through Christ, our risen Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen. I also want to share with you that you, you saw an announcement a few weeks ago that we started a, a new a prayer ministry. This has always been a church that's believed in prayer, um, but uh, I'm thankful that a few have felt, had the felt calling to start uh, a ministry where, where this will be happening in, in a more uh, just a structured way in some ways. Um, and so right now, uh, during the service, uh, we have folks that are praying. They're praying for not only this message, uh, but they're praying for you. Uh, that God will speak a word to you right now. Somebody's praying for you, and I just want you to know that. It's a great gift to me, and I hope that it's a great blessing to you. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to be opening to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our series walking through this most comprehensive book, the book of Romans. And I just want to uh, start with a question is, is how many of you uh, ask questions? <laughs> More specifically, uh, how many of you ask questions in a conversation that you're having and you answer the question before the other person can answer the question? How many of you do that? You know, you ask a question, then you go ahead and answer it. I mean, we as parents, particularly parents of, of young kids, uh, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, we, we ask questions to our kids and we, we just go ahead and, and give them the answer, you know? I mean, do we put toys in the toilet? No, we do not. We ask the question, then we just go ahead and we answer it, right? Should you cut your own hair? No, you should not, right? Should you store things in your underpants? Right? Only on Tuesdays. That's the only, that's the only time you can do that. You know, we, we ask these questions, and then we, we answer them. Uh, and what we're going to see in Romans chapter 3 today uh, is that Paul is going to ask, and he's going to respond to eight different questions in eight verses. Now, we're going to go beyond the eight verses, but, but this is, this, he really packs a punch in these first eight verses that we're going to walk through. Uh, so let's jump in, Romans 3, chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then, Paul says, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. So Paul very clearly has this Q&A dialogue with himself. But as a, a good speaker would do, one, what does a good speaker do? A good speaker knows his or her audience. So that, that's the first step in, in becoming a good speaker. You know your audience that you're speaking to. But then secondly, what a good speaker is going to do is a good speaker is going to answer, or a teacher is going to answer 
the questions that that teacher anticipates from those that are listening, right? And so this is what, this is what Paul's going to do, addresses foreseeable questions right up front. And the language in this uh, dialogue, it really uh, revolves around uh, two Greek word families. I'm not going to give you the Greek words, but I'll tell you what they mean. It's, it's the word for faith, and it's the word for just, being just or being right. So those are, those are the two Greek word families that are uh, prevalent in this, this first eight verses in Romans chapter 3. And these, these two word families give voice to really the, these two theological issues that are at stake. And I'm going to list these uh, on the screen for you. And, and trust me, we're going to jump to the practical here in just a moment, but we have to have our theological footing and our grounding uh, before we jump to the practical. Uh, so two realities. Number one is that human faithfulness, uh, faithlessness rather, human faithlessness and unrighteousness. So this is, this is reality number one that, that Paul's addressing, human faithlessness and unrighteousness, or you could say injustice. All right, reality number two that Paul is addressing is divine faithfulness, not faithlessness, but faithfulness and righteousness, or you could say justice. So these are the, these are the two realities that, that Paul is, is addressing in the, these first eight verses. But there's two realities, yet there's only one point. And the one point is that human faithlessness does not compromise divine faithfulness. And so th this is an important a theological distinction that, that Paul is trying to make here. And again, you know, if you're asking, well, what's the point? You know, why are we talking about this? That's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, but we have, to get, we have to get this footing before we move forward. Uh, so hold on to that th thought. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? That's Paul's right there. Another question. So Paul's just full of questions in this chapter. But what shall we conclude then? Paul is really coming to this, this spot after a few chapters. And I know uh, it seems like uh, we've been in this series for a long time already, and we're only on chapter 3. Uh, but, but in chapter 1, uh, Paul kind of begins this, this discourse. Remember, we're thinking about the book of Romans uh, like a symphony. Uh, it's, it's almost like this, this musical of sorts. And as scholar N.T. Wright would call it, there, there's these different movements that are happening in the symphony. And we're still in, in movement number one. We're, we're still in the first movement. And so Paul in chapter one, he kind of starts this, this discourse, and he's, he's coming to this point. This point, chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage, Paul says? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And this is Paul's astounding statement. This is the great leveling of humanity. This is the human predicament that Paul is, is staking his case on. And, and he's saying religious or unreligious, all are under sin. One author says it like this, that we all have a spiritual passport. And that passport is, is either stamped one or two ways. Now, I've, I've had the, the blessing and the privilege of, of traveling all over the world. And it never fails 
Anytime that I have to carry my, my passport somewhere and get that passport stamped, whether it be in, in Africa or the Philippines or Honduras or, or Israel, the places that we've been able, I, wherever I go, anytime that I have to get that passport stamped, I always, always hold my breath a little bit because I'm, I'm waiting. Like, just give me that stamp so I can, I can move on. You know, because like you, you, hold, you, you hold the power in your hands. Like this is, this is going to go really bad if you don't stamp it, and this could go better if you do stamp it. And we, th- we think about this in kind of this, this terms of a spiritual passport. That we are either stamped under sin or we are stamped under grace. These are the two stamps. And this is a bit of what Paul is trying to draw out here. He's not, not quite got there yet. But we're going to get more practical again here in a moment. But, but what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, he says. Does this mean that every person is as sinful as every other person? Well, no. But it means that our human condition is the same. So verse 11, there's no one who understands There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Paul here is quoting Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Ecclesiastes 7. He's he's bringing the the narrative story of God into his his argument. Verse 13, "Their, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. That's from Psalm 5. The, the poison of vipers is on their lips. That's from Psalm 140. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's from Psalm 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marks their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. That is from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In Psalm 36. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law... So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So, as we see in Romans chapter 3, Paul is very meticulously and very strategically laying out this, this blueprint. And it's this blueprint that we see in the Old Testament. And Paul shows that God has steadfastly been righteous through all generations. Uh, one of our shepherds is teaching a, a class on the book of Genesis uh, right here in our chapel every Sunday, Nathan Heisler. Uh, and he's walking through how we, we see this, this narrative theme uh, develop uh, from the very beginning of God's story. And uh, it's a wonderful class. I hope you'll check it out. Um, and this, this is similar to what I think Paul is trying to do. He's trying to walk us through this blueprint that exists. And yet God's people are all under this power of sin. And then Paul really goes through and he lists these effects of sin. So you'll, you'll see this on the screen if you're taking notes in your, your Romans journal or if you're going to discuss this in your connect groups later on today. Here, here's some, some of the effects that we see of, of sin. You know, we, we talk about sometimes, well, we don't talk about sin anymore. You know, we don't, well, well, we're talking about sin today. All right, Paul's talking about sin. 
And here's some of the effects of sin. Sin affects our, our standing. That, that no one is, is righteous and your deeds don't change that. Sin affects our, our minds. There's no one who understands, verse 11. Sin affects our, our motives. He says no one seeks God, whether we, we run and, and hide from God. This is the, 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 the human condition that we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 where Adam and Eve, they're, they're running and they're hiding from God and trying to cover them, themselves up. Sin affects our wills. All have, have turned away, verse 12. All like sheep have gone astray, the prophet Isaiah would say. Sin affects our speech. Their, their throats are open grave, verse 13. We use our tongues to what? We use our tongues to protect our own interest. We use our tongues to, to protect our own interest and to damage the interests of others often. Sin affects our relationships, verse 15 through 17. So, so why do we become so, so angry and frustrated with other people? Because... Oftentimes, they have blocked from us some, some sort of idol that's hidden deep in our heart. It's this, this idol that they have compromised our comfort. Or somebody has, has made us feel like we're, we're no longer in control or, or we're out of control. Or somebody's enjoying a, a relationship that we feel like uh, we need. And of course, we're not talking about marital unfaithfulness or anything like that. But, but there, there's these idols that are in our hearts. And when we do not live enjoying God's approval in Christ, we do not know peace ourselves, and so we cannot live in peace with others. Or we live in false peace with others. And lastly, sin affects our relationship with God. And so there's no fear of God before our eyes, verse 18. Now, you you look at this list on the screen, and you probably think, well, that's the most depressing sermon I've heard all day, you know. But, but Paul is, is not skirting this, this reality. He, he's, he's again honing in on this human predicament. Yet we must understand sin's effects or we will never understand the effects of the cross and the empty tomb. And so th- this is what Paul is driving. Again, we're, we're, we're trying to, to keep the context of Romans in, in purview as we, as, we, as we talk about it and as we study. Because this was not a letter that was originally written with 16 chapters. It was one letter. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to continue to, to see the letter as a whole. And we're going to get to uh, where we're going. But we, we can't just pass over these few chapters that if we're going to really understand the goodness of God, what a beautiful song today. But if we're really going to understand the goodness of God, because I'm sure some of you were sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, but. If we're really going to understand the goodness of God, we're going to have to understand how bad our predicament has been. So, what's the root of our sin? Paul often uh, uses sin as a way of talking about evil as an almost personal force at work in the world. And this this comes out particularly in chapter 7. We're going to get to chapter 7 in just a few weeks. Uh, Next week we'll we'll finish up chapter 3 and then we'll we'll go into chapter 4. 
And then I'm excited that uh, Dr. John Mark Hicks is going to be here on May 21st to talk about Romans chapter 5, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that time. And then we'll, we'll get into chapter 6 and 7, so it won't be, be too far from now, but we'll, we'll dive into to Romans chapter 7, and, and Paul really gets into this, this theme of the, the sin being this, this personal force at work in the world. What's the root of our sin? Well, verses 11 and verse 18, we don't seek God. And we do not fear God. Now, we, we talk about the love of God, and we absolutely should talk about the love of God. John would tell us that God is love. You wouldn't even know, I wouldn't even know what love is if it weren't for God. He was the one who loved us first. Psalmist would also say, though, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That we have this, this healthy all in reverence of who God is, the late George Whitfield would say it this way, you must not only be made sick of your sin, but you must be sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. And I can tell you, after being a Christian for over 30 years, this is still an area that the Spirit of God is constantly sanctifying my soul in. This, this area of self-righteousness, Tim Keller uh, in his book would say it this way, that the main difference between a Christian and a religious person is not so much their attitudes toward their sins, but toward their good deeds. Both will repent of their sins, but only the Christian will repent of wrongly motivated good works, while the religious person will actually rely on them. Hmm. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon would often tell a story, which I think gets to the heart of this. At once in a kingdom long ago, uh, there was a king, a good king, and one of the, the gardeners that was a part of that kingdom uh, loved this king. And so he, he grew uh, the biggest carrot that he's ever grown. And he took this big carrot to the king. And the, the king was, was so struck by his, his, his devotion and his love for him that he, he told the gardener, he said, uh, because of your love and devotion, I, I am going to, to give you some land to, to help cultivate your garden even further than it is now. One of the noblemen saw this incident take place, and he thought to himself, well, if, if the king gave the gardener that for a carrot, imagine what he'll give me if I give him a horse. So the nobleman goes before the king, and he gives him this fine steed, one of the finest steeds in all the land. And what does the king say to him? The king discerned his heart and his soul. And he said, you expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me a carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. What's the point? That if you know that God loves you and that you know your identity in Christ, 
that there's nothing you can do or need to do but accept his perfect righteousness. And then you can go. Then you can go and feed the hungry. Then you can go and visit the sick. Then you can go and clothe the naked. And all of it will be done as a gift to God. But if you think that you're going to get or keep your salvation by doing these good deeds, it's really yourself feeding yourself. It's yourself clothing yourself. It's yourself that you are visiting. So the question becomes, I believe Romans 3 really sets this up, is, is who will you serve this week? Or maybe the better question is, in whose name will we serve? Paul, even when issuing this biblical indictment of his readers, he does so in such a way as to hint, for those who know their Bibles, that the solution is close at hand. So several times Paul has already quoted from the praise book of the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. And if we, if we do a, a survey of, of this book, what we see is that God is righteous. He's righteous in several ways. He's righteous in his judgments against the wicked, Psalm 10, 14, 53, 143. That God is, is righteous in his concern and justice for the poor, Psalm 10, Psalm 140. That God is righteous in his establishment of righteous words and decrees, Psalm 119. I love how uh, last year Dr. Pruitt taught a class and and he had us meditate on Psalm 119 for a whole semester. It was beautiful just to go through the, the different sections of Psalm 119. In his forgiveness to sinners, God is righteous, Psalm 51. You remember what we sang a few moments ago? Create in me a clean heart, oh, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. That Psalm of David, Psalm 51, and then God is righteous, but, but this, this is this big theme in Romans, and then God's refuge is for who? We walk through again. What do we see? God's refuge is for those who praise God. Psalm 5, God's refuge is for those who draw near to God. We don't have time to read all these. I encourage you to take a picture and, and review these on your own. God's refuge is for those who dwell in his presence and call on his name, Psalm 63. Someone might have an intellectual interest in the possibility of God or a philosophical conviction that there is a God. But that's not real passion to meet with God. If we can keep him in the realm of intellectual argument or philosophical construct, we can keep ourselves from having to deal with the objective reality of the true God. God's refuge is for those who dwell in his presence. God's refuge is also for those who get God's spirit on them and receive God's forgiveness. God's refuge is for those who cling to God and are satisfied in him. Psalm 36 and 63. This past week we laid to rest a longtime member of this congregation, Dr. James Thompson. And when I asked 
what was one of Dr. Thompson's favorite scriptures, the family responded with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And in a society where there's this tyranny of want, the psalmist says, I shall not want. Because I know who the shepherd is. Jesus would say, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep, they know my voice. Do you know his voice this morning? Here's the sermon in, in one line. Humankind has been unfaithful, but God has remained steadfast in his faithfulness. God's righteousness shines all the more clearly amidst the rampant unrighteousness of humankind. And this is what I believe Paul is doing in this first movement of this symphony. To may our own unrighteousness and sinfulness drive us to God, to cling to him as the only righteous person in the universe. Because humanity requires intervention. It requires a benevolent and divine intervention. Paul wants his audience then and now to recall how they and how we have been set free. So, a few verses later, Romans 3, 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father and our God, we're thankful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for a word that convicts us. We're grateful for a word that continues to point us to your goodness. Father, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you have been faithful. And for that, we are eternally grateful. So we pray as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And the church said, Amen.